Hi, it's Katerina Fake, and this is Ingenious. And today, I'm driving through the English countryside, a few hours outside of London, with lovely old stone cottages and more sheep than you could possibly count. We're approaching Soho Farmhouse, which is where the conference will be held. I'm not sure how many people are here. I think it's probably two or 300 people. I'm here for an annual event for European entrepreneurs called Founders Forum. And I've invited Andrei Liskovich, head of the Ukraine Defense Fund, to join me. I think it's a group of people that get things done. Andrei's the perfect guest for Ingenious, which is about hope, vision, bravery, and how it can be used to fight some of the worst things confronting us, like climate change or war. The event we're attending, Founders Forum, has been around for about 15 years, bringing together founders with politicians, big shots, VIPs, and investors. And it has created a lot of, you know, auxiliary businesses, events, organizations. Andre and I are scheduled to have an onstage conversation in front of a live audience. Mostly, I'm hoping he'll find support for his efforts. You remember seeing all the Ukrainian volunteers at the beginning of the war? Young men in Adidas going to their nearest conscription office. Grandmothers making Molotov cocktails. The rest of the world was so impressed at how courageous the Ukrainian people were. The Ukraine Defense Fund exists for them. It helps source and distribute supplies to the front lines for the army of civilian volunteers. Everything from body armor to thermal underwear to energy bars, generators, batteries, and vehicles. It's an invaluable service helping Ukrainians defend themselves since March of last year. In the very beginning of the war, you had incredible sympathy. How is it now and has that changed? People cannot stay focused on something like this indefinitely. And so some people have just moved on to other issues, understandably. Before we took this drive to the posh gathering of founders and investors, Andre and I talked about his work back at our not-so-posh hotel, the Holiday Inn Express in Bicester, England. His work is a masterclass in leadership and perseverance. What you're about to hear, just for the podcast, is my one-on-one conversation with Andrei Liskovich, a world away from the war in Ukraine, but understandably never far from his thoughts. I just wanted to thank you for coming. And uh, I know we actually, when we called you, we weren't sure you would be able to leave. Because I know that there's a prohibition against Mm -hmm. um, men between the ages of 18 and 60 leaving. Mm -hmm. Can you tell a little bit about what that is and how it works Mm -hmm. and how it was that you were able to come? Yes. Since, I believe, day four, day three of the war, they imposed uh, universal draft and they uh, restricted, uh, understandably, travel for men 18 to 60. It became very clear that there are certain circumstances where it's very important to get people out, in particular people who drive humanitarian aid. So the rules right now is that you can apply for an exit permit for a particular purpose, which is what I do every time I leave Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I've already been out maybe five times or so. So every time I go, I get this permit, and then the granted to you for a limited period of time, and then you have to come back within 30 days. So that's how I'm here. And when you take, the, you've taken five trips so far, mm-hmm. what are you usually doing when you go on these trips? We have two uh, big objectives. One is uh, fundraising. Uh, it's important to meet donors face-to-face. They want to ask a lot of questions and 
uh, they won't do it in person. So it's important to go see them. Uh, the second thing that we do is we try to facilitate specific aid transactions, meaning negotiating contracts with vendors of equipment and with potential funders, which are in many cases governments. It's important to note, Andre's a low-key guy who doesn't seek the spotlight and gets the job done without drama or fanfare. One reason why his story is so interesting is he comes from Silicon Valley. He'd been the CEO of Uberworks and had worked on multiple startups. Andre says running the Ukraine Defense Fund is often like running a startup. He'd studied in Moscow, got his PhD at Harvard, but he hadn't lived in Ukraine for more than 20 years. Andre is now based in Zaporizhia, where he was born and raised. It's home to Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which has been occupied by Russians since the first few months of the war. When the invasion happened last year, Andre's first move was to make certain his parents got out. And then, without telling them, his second move was to get on a plane out of San Francisco and head for the conscription office. So when you made this decision that you were going to go, what was happening and what made you decide to go? Well, that's actually interesting because almost the entire month of February, I was in Moscow and other parts of Russia because I thought that the war might start. And because I went to college in Moscow, I wanted to see my friends and I knew that if the war were to start, I would not be able to come back. So I wanted to go visit them and also understand what the vibe was like there. Did they believe that the war would start? And I also wanted to visit the Caucasus, all these republics that had a history of conflict with Russia and within Russia. And this was before anything had happened? Yes. That you're um, doing all of this reconnaissance, basically? Yes. If you remember, Biden was fairly certain, at least he made a very... Uh, high certainty statement that the war would start on the 16th of February. And on the 16th, I booked a hotel room on Smolenska Square across the street from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia. So I, I would see if they like prepare something at night because you would imagine the war would start at dawn or earlier and so they would be staying the overnight. Be yeah, and it was nothing unusual. And then the following day, I went to the tallest building in Moscow, the Federation Tower, and got a place at the 90th floor from where you could see the Kremlin, the general staff, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, like all of that. Couldn't see anything unusual. And so I stayed there for two days. Nothing was happening. I thought, okay, it's time to leave. And I tried to leave by train, but I was taken off the train by the FSB. They told me only Russian and Belarusian citizens were allowed. Uh, And so... That was already an alarming thing. And then I took the plane out on the 20th. And so I left Russia on the 20th of February and came back to San Francisco. And so I uh, was in San Francisco when the war actually started. Uh, so I was glued to the news. I was you know, constantly refreshing the, the Telegram channels where all they were posting, all the updates on what was happening in the north and the south. And then I saw this... Um, Instagram uh, post by Zelensky where he showed that he and the key people in the government have stayed. And that was probably the moment when I decided, okay, I, if, if they're staying, then there might be still something that could be done. And um, maybe it's not too late. So and I on the 26th, I flew out and crossed the border on the 27th. Can you tell me a little bit more about your journey from Silicon Valley to Ukraine? You said it was three days of flights, hitchhiking. Uh, oh, yeah, that was train. a gnarly trip. I departed from San Francisco, had a layover in Chicago, and 
when I was going through TSA and like people were checking my passport, they was they saw my Ukrainian passport. Like I was just feeling the sympathy. I mean, they were all like saying things to me and and they looked at where I was going. I was going to Poland, and so they would ask like, "Are you going back?" And then I said yes, and so they like pat me on the back. It's there was a lot of sympathy, like very visible. In Warsaw, I got on another flight to Rzeszow, which is the closest city to the border. There was an incredibly ominous sunset, super dark at the top, and it looked like the darkness was consuming that light. It, was, it really looked super ominous. Point. Do you have yeah, a picture I, I have of the it? picture, yes. Oh, that must have been remarkable. So this is the... It is a cost. completely black sky. That's the thing that's really, really spooky about it. And it's weighing down on the on the light, this little scrim of light on the horizon. Like a curtain. Like it is down. a curtain coming down on the, on the light, and so it was very uh, ominous for the reason. Mm. I I had heard that you wrote your last will and testament on the plane. Um, yes, because I. How old are you? Uh, I'm 38. If there was a time, that might have been the time. Mm. So one of the first things you did when you arrived in Zaporizhia was you went by your childhood home. Would you talk a little bit about what it was like to go back? Because you tell me how long it had been since you had been away and why you wanted to go visit these places. I visited my parents for the New Year's. So I was there and I actually talked with them about the possibility that the war might start. And they thought that was insane. So I was just doing contingency planning. I didn't expect it to start, but I was there for the holidays, for the New Year's. Then I left, and when I returned, I didn't tell my parents that I would be coming back. So they left with the keys. I couldn't get in. So I, they didn't know I was in Ukraine. And if they knew, they would not have left. So I, it was very important to keep them unaware. There was a moment when they were going west and I was going east, when we were literally like a couple of miles from each other. So I was on a train in Ternopil when they were staying in Ternopil. And I knew that I was passing by them but I couldn't tell them because I was going there and they would not they would just have turned around so it was an emotional moment it was very difficult to get through that so when I arrived home I didn't know what to expect and so when you looked at the news reports of you know, buildings getting uh, hit with missiles there was no guarantee that my my childhood home would stand for much longer so I just wanted to go inside and so I was able to get into the entryway and uh, it's an apartment building so I could get inside but not into the apartment and you know a lot of associations are attached to smells when you go into a particular building especially the ones that you grew up in there's a particular smell that draws all these memories from the past and I went into that building and I and I felt that uh, smell and I like I really wanted to like fix it in my memory because I didn't know if, if this is something I would see or, or again Mm-hmm. And I came to Zaporizhia, and uh, it was already March 1st, I believe, when I arrived, and went to the conscription office, and I volunteered to join. Andre says he walked in, and a person who knew him told the head of the conscription office who he was, and about his background. And it was an instantaneous assignment. Get us supplies. Just so you picture people in sweater sneakers jeans like completely casual like normal civilian clothes so those were the folks waiting there and what they were given was an ak-47 and two spare magazines of ammo per person so that's all they were given no tactical clothes no, no, nothing else mm-hmm. and and so that's the degree of 
preparedness at the time. And and so what, what happened was they asked me to use all the resources I had access to to go buy the stuff. And apparently it was possible to still buy it with Apple Pay at military surplus stores, a lot of this equipment. And so I was mm. given a military convoy, this vehicle with two armed soldiers who were helping me like shop for this stuff. And we would clear out the stores and would just give it immediately to the territorial defense forces who would then drive it to the front. Uh, within two hours, the money would be deployed to the front. So that's probably the shortest imaginable cycle. Yeah. And this is the time when a lot of NGOs were raising on Facebook. And, you know, Facebook holds that money for for a long time before it releases them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a delay. You know, the, the wars have this property. If you look at the history of wars, of durations, they are distributed by power law, which means... Mm-hmm. That the longer the war has lasted, the longer it's expected expected to last. And conversely, in the first days of the war, your planning horizon is very short because everything may be decided in just days. If the whole thing falls apart, there's not going to be this long protracted war. And so if you really want to make a difference immediately. You can't wait for some distribution schedule from Facebook. You need to immediately act. And so we were able to drive around town and buy these things with, like, my phone. I would tap with Apple Pay, pay for, you know, shoes, with for, you know, backpacks, clothes, like, all of what they were needing at the time. And the word got out among my network that I went to Ukraine. And so people started to just randomly Venmo me money, which I could then that money I could use to pay down my credit card and then pay more for these equipment. So there was a way to immediately deploy the money even faster because Venmo takes like a couple of days to deploy to your checking account mm. without fees. So I could use the, my credit card limit to against that. And so there was a real obvious way to immediately create an impact. However, within two weeks or so, we had no more inventory left in locally. And, and what's very interesting is that the army was not commandeering these assets. I mean, I would imagine... I expected them to go commandeer these assets because this is the war. And if they don't do this, the city might be taken and then the Russians will use this equipment anyway. So I was very critical of the fact that they were not commandeering assets. But in hindsight, it ended up being a very positive thing because those commercial supply chains were the most effective thing during the war. So because we paid them, they were able to eventually replenish these stocks and they were very incentivized to provide these things quickly and um, exactly what was needed. Not something abstract, but the exact items that were in demand. So it's the, uh, whereas, whereas if they had been commandeered and everything no had capital. been taken, they don't have capital, they're not making yes. sales, Yes. they can't replenish the supplies. So Got I it. think so. commandeering still makes sense if this is your last stand. So if you know yeah. there's not going to be a second time. Yeah. But... Uh, when I arrived in Zaporizhia, I didn't know what to expect because yeah, yeah. I, I had never arrived to Zaporizhia when it was in active war. And I mean, the last time there was war was World War II. So it's not in my memory that I could compare it to anything. But the mood was somber, uh, but it was there was a little panic. There was a lot of people doing the work, uh, preparing, and they were expecting that there would be uh, the city would be stormed within hours. But because we were able to buy this equipment with money, they didn't shut down. They continued to procure. And there was a gap. There was a period when we could not buy anything locally. But they used that money to reestablish supply chains with new vendors and and start some manufacturing in Ukraine and buy some of the stuff from the West. 
And the unsung heroes of this war have, in fact, been these commercial enterprises, grocery chains, uh, Nova Poshta, Ukrainian version of UPS, or Rosetka, you know, this Amazon of Ukraine where you can go buy things online. And uh, a, a lot of the people who just provide essential services, they have recovered very quickly from the initial panic. And I would say logistics today works in Ukraine better than it does in the US. Like you can get anything from the Polish border to the front within two days, very cheaply and mm -hmm. quite reliably. Uh, there was chaos in the early days, but they resolved this. And so uh, what we were trying to do was to, once the supplies ran out, was to raise money in the West more formally and buy things in the West. So bring incremental supply to the country rather than redistribute within the country. And that's when we set up a Ukraine Defense Fund, a US-based 501c3, and started with a group of ex-Uber colleagues, uh, this organization that was focusing on full cycle procurement. We would raise the money, we would vet and find the vendors and buy equipment. We would deliver it in record time. Our ETA from Redwood City to Donbass was 90 hours. So in 90 That's hours, amazing. we could get yeah. uh, drones with all the challenges because these drones, you know, with all kinds of customs, people want to ask a lot of questions about drones. So getting through all of that was possible within 90 hours. And then we distribute, and that's a whole challenge. How do you rationally distribute in Ukraine? Because everyone has a need. How do you find the biggest impact? How do you find who needs it the most and who can use it the most effectively? That's a whole challenge. And that's what we were doing in the first three months or so. What was surprising to me as I talked to Andre was how we mostly hear in the news about the heavy artillery, missiles, and cluster munitions that are needed for warfare. Whereas he was telling an undertold story about how this war is also being fought using the Ukrainian equivalent of Target or Amazon. When you first got there, did you think that you were going, you were signing up to be a fighter? My mindset was that there are certainly things that I could identify as problems that I can contribute to solving. If it was fighting, I was willing to do that. And I know that in 2014, there's a famous episode with Mariupol. Uh, Mariupol was taken by uh, the Russians in April 2014 and it was liberated in June 2014 by Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It was liberated by 30 people. Amazing. So there are circumstances where a very yeah. small number of people, if they are at the right place at the right time, can make a very big difference. And so I thought if I had to join and you know be among those 30, I had to do that. But at the same time, I knew that there were other problems that are not just manpower. There were many people lined up volunteering to fight, but they were so awfully unequipped that the biggest problem in my mind was getting equipment to them. And that's what we focused on. This was um, leveraging our connections in Silicon Valley. We got a lot of donations from various Silicon Valley luminaries. Uber execs have donated heavily. And we just received a lot of support from the community, and not just in money, but also in product and equipment. And so that was very heartening. And we thought that that was the best application of our uh, particular capabilities. And then things changed in terms of what we do, the composition of what we do around June, when private donations started to drop in response to large government bills being passed, because you know, $40 billion bill was passed in May, and private donors started to think, well, it's now Uncle Sam's job. Like, we are dropping the bucket compared to what the government can do. Mm. And that was 
true on the assumption that the government will be spending money on the same categories with the same level of efficacy. But they weren't, um, they weren't solving the same needs. And when you go from here to Washington, what will you be doing there? I'll meet with uh, a number of government people. I'll meet with people on the Hill. I'll meet with um, people at the DOD, people at the State Department. The main objective for us is to raise awareness of the importance of commercial non-lethal technology. Uh, if you look at the aid that has been provided to Ukraine, it's been largely in two categories. It's humanitarian or lethal military or specialized equipment built by defense prime contractors. But in practice, the role of Commercial non-lethal technology has been underappreciated by the allies, and it has been incredibly important in Ukraine. Things that people could buy with their own money, drones, Starlinks, radios, laptops, tablets, like all of these things that are everyday items that you can go and buy pretty easily on Amazon, those played a very big role in closing what's called the kill chain, which is a gruesome name for uh, what the military engages in. So every transaction, you need to find a target, you need to hit the target, and you need to confirm that you hit it. And then you, if, if you didn't, you need to correct your fire and then execute it again. And so that loop is called kill chain. And apart from a weapon that you're using to shoot, you also need a way of finding the target. You need a way of communicating it to the uh, system that you're using. And all of those components that are uh, involved in observation in communication. Most of it has been procured by NGOs and soldiers themselves. They literally pull their mm -hmm. salaries. It's routine for them to spend a third to a half of their salary on equipment for themselves. And because these things are not subject to expert controls, anyone can go buy them. And they are heavily used in Ukraine as a complement, as a amplifier to whatever they have on the lethal side. And, and you were talking about this earlier. I thought it was very interesting to me that in some ways you reacted very negatively to the idea of dual use or things that are being developed for dual use. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, dual use is part of the spectrum. So if you start with a spectrum where on one side you have, you know, tanks, howitzers, like actual lethal mm. effectors. And on the other hand, you have socks, something completely banal. You still need them in large quantities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a large spectrum in between where there's purely civilian assets that uh, people use in their everyday lives that could be used by the military. An example would be a phone. Like the army, in fact, is run on WhatsApp. Like artillery strikes are called on WhatsApp. It's typically the case. Mm -hmm. Not always, sometimes they use radios, but it's very routine to see people exchanging audio messages on WhatsApp. So there are all these things that work, like consumer electronics, that work out of the box. But then there is this group of products, and I'm primarily referring to drones, that have been dual use, but it's a relatively nascent field. And while they work well in a civilian context and have promise in the military context, they don't quite work well in the military context when they're confronted with sophisticated countermeasures, uh, which Russia has been deploying at scale, yeah. electronic warfare. Yeah. They have been used successfully in military contexts in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the enemy did not have these capabilities. But in Ukraine, where Russia is deploying these capabilities everywhere along the front, they frequently fail. And by and large, this dual use part of the spectrum is heavily underperforming in Ukraine, and it requires significant amount of iteration to get it to become dual use, not just dual use in name only. And that iteration requires presence in Ukraine because they are not really able to close the feedback loop well. 
I mean, imagine building a product without having access to your end user. Mm-hmm. Like if you're and you, and you have no way of replicating the conditions at home, many of these companies don't even have licenses to operate jammers in their home countries. So they can't even test their product against something that jams GPS. Developers in Silicon Valley will recognize this particular issue. You need to put your product in the hands of actual users to see how it works, how they use it, and make adaptations from what you learn. But this is difficult to test back home for obvious reasons, so you're doing user research on the battlefield. Have you been able to get out on the field and be with the soldiers on the ground? Yes, it's part of the scope of my work. Um, So we do a couple of things, and one of them is helping Western vendors close that feedback loop. And that often requires going to the very front and spending time with the military and seeing how they use this equipment and getting feedback from multiple people. Because just like in a commercial context, you shouldn't always trust what surveys say. When you ask your users what they want, (laughs) they will tell you they want faster horses. This is a famous Henry Ford line. People also want to give you unwarranted positive feedback because they want you to feel good. They want you to feel good because you gave them something. So they want you to just feel appreciated. You're supporting them and helping them. Uh, But that's in fact not helpful because you want to get actionable critical feedback so that the product can be brought to the bar that uh, is set by the battlefield. So it's not easy to do. So any good UX engineer or, you know, designer would just observe. Yeah, I kind of, do you do this? I'm effectively a user researcher for these firms on occasion. So when I go to the front and just see what they do and you, you try not to ask them for solutions. Mm-hmm. The main thing is to understand what the problem is. Yeah. And oftentimes the solution is not what they think the solution is. They don't have enough time being creative. That's not to say, in fact, there's been quite a lot of creative solutions that emerged from the trenches. And there's a fairly vibrant mil tech sector in Ukraine. Many of the founders were either ex-military or current military. They're doing this on the side as a necessity. And they have an advantage over a lot of Western equipment because they have a better feedback loop. And that's very critical to building a product that meets the need. We're obsessed with the speed of innovation and iteration in Silicon Valley. And I really appreciated how fast the equipment is tested, discarded, improved, or adapted in the field. Historically, many technologies came from the military, and Andre really drove home why. Give me some example. What does it feel like out there? Can you tell me any, any stories from, from the front? I'll give you a couple of examples. So I uh, spent some time with the 54th Brigade uh, that was deployed near Donetsk. So it's an artillery brigade. They uh, were stationed near Marinka, which is frequently in the news. They were a little south of Marinka back then. I spent several days with them, living with them. They were based in the village, so they would have a couple of houses where they would stay. They would have effectively barracks, the double-decker bunks uh, where they would sleep. They would have makeshift tables, and they would work from there. It would be like their command post. And the way it looks is you have a table. Uh, there would be some locals who give them, bring them food, so it's there's always some food on the table. And they would casually sit on a couch and there would be a radio in the back where they would hear occasionally coordinates of some target that the forward deployed unit has detected and they would casually call artillery strikes on the phone so they would leave a you know battery five three rounds rapid fire something like that you would you would hear it and then 
you would actually hear the fire. You would hear the rounds go out. And then within 30 seconds, they hit or not hit the target. And then they would do fire correction. And then you would hear that. And so there's constantly something blowing up outside. And you have this feeling of, I would call it an inverse FOMO. It's, it's not the fear of missing out. It's the fear that uh, you won't miss out on something hitting the the location where you are. Because that place was eight miles from Donetsk, which is very much within artillery range. If the Russians knew where we were, they could have easily hit that location. So you constantly have this fear that this constant background risk and, you know, that wears out your nerves. It's not easy to be in that condition. Many of them have become fatalistic. They Mm. ignore this risk and they basically are willing to die. And as a result, they have a very short planning horizon and you would frequently have those see them have latest iPhones because again they just would blow their salary on something that they can use today and they, they want the best phone and you know it's very common to see these folks deal with the stress by ignoring the risk kind of mm. deciding that okay I've just accepted it I'm willing to die and then they operate from that base point Andre also mentioned that it's common to see the soldiers playing video games, and not Tetris or Candy Crush, first-person shooters. To me, playing first-person shooters during their downtime doesn't seem like much of an escape from real life. But most of them say the games aren't even close to the real-life experiences. I also visited the strategic command for the Southern Front, because the entire operation is run by General Tarnovsky, who is like overseeing all of the brigades that are uh, involved in the counteroffensive. And similarly, it's calm, work, working atmosphere. The facility looks like a NASA mission control center with screens and streams from different drones and all kinds of information about the state of the front. But you see that they just work. They, they are not mm-hmm. trying to predict the outcome. They are trying to change the outcome. And that's the fundamental mode in which uh, you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. This is famous Alan Kay quote, that the best way to predict the future is to invent it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a paraphrase of Drucker's, I believe, which was to create it instead of invent it. But yes. this is very much about agency. Like, let's stop trying to play this betting game like instead of betting let's try to figure out what can we do to change the outcome and so that's what they're focused on and uh, those visits show you the level of morale they show you a level of sophistication i was quite impressed by the facility itself Mm -hmm. by the way that facility is communications equipment it's all civilian stuff and in order to create a nasa style conference room a big facility that like you just don't need a lot of things made by the military industrial complex it's all civilian and so the uh, command of the operation is relying heavily on that and uh, it's very interesting to see it's almost a historic thing to to know to observe uh, during this time so i every time i go to the front i find it incredibly valuable all these intangible things that are hard to describe in words so here we are 16 months since this all began. What do you think is next? Everyone is watching the counteroffensive. Everyone wants to see what happens. One should learn from history that the longer the war has lasted, the longer it's expected to last. So we shouldn't be counting on it being over soon. We should be doing everything possible to end it quickly, and that requires concentrated force. And... Ukraine today is using 
by various public accounts in the order of 12 brigades, that's something like 60,000 people. It could have been using a lot more because it has conscripted a million, but there's not enough equipment for them. And outfitting those other brigades and creating a larger concentration of effort is a recipe to ending this war with Ukrainian victory. I think this war is winnable. I think the West can play a decisive role in this. And it's a matter of decision uh, by the political leaders in the West. And it will depend on the interest that the public shows in this. And for me, the most important thing is to maintain public interest in the successful outcome that would then translate into the necessary steps by the political leadership to supply Ukraine's own forces with the necessary equipment that will allow it to move the line to uh, the border that would be defensible. If there is anything I took away from spending time with Andre, it is that people on the ground can make an enormous difference. So often we feel helpless and like things are out of our hands. Biden, Zelensky, and NATO are who is responsible. Governments, generals, and heads of state. But your donations at ukrainedefensefund.org will certainly make a difference. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Andrei Liskovich with our admiration and wishes for your safety. I'm Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. You can also find me on LinkedIn. We've created an Ingenious newsletter on Substack with bonus content and reading around each episode. Both links are in our show bio and description of this episode. See you next time.